0: Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each podcast, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment agencies. Topics covered include IR35, protecting your recruitment business and the different challenges facing the recruitment industry. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business front runners looking for expert information from industry leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the first podcast from Recruitment Leadership Limited. Um, My name is Alison Humphreys, thank you for joining us, I'm the Managing Director of Recruitment Leadership and for those listeners who don't know uh, my business, um, it specialises in working with directors and owners of recruitment businesses in the UK and internationally um, to help them achieve their objectives, whether that's a business event or exit um, or to enter new markets, improving profitability or just to create some sanity while they Uh, run their business. Um, uh, Today I am joined by an expert in uh, employment law with a real specialist expertise in the recruitment sector, Simon Whitehead who is the managing partner of HRC Law in Manchester. So welcome Simon. Um, Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your work?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I've worked with recruitment businesses since about 2001 um, and obviously gone through lots of changes in that uh, nearly 20-year period. Um, Never rests, never sits still, it's always moving. And um, I've worked alongside lots of recruitment businesses in all different sectors and all different shapes and sizes um, since that period. And um, it's been really enjoyable and I think it will continue to be really enjoyable and interesting.
1: Great. Yes, it is certainly interesting. So um, we've had... Um, on the 17th of December, um, a somewhat oddly timed announcement um, about, quote, the largest upgrade in workers' rights for a generation, so-called by um, Greg Clark, the Secretary for Business, Energy and Industry. Um, would like to just start with your first reaction to those things, um, please, Simon, bearing in mind that there's very little detail uh, out there at the moment. The timing seems a bit odd, don't you think? The yeah. week before Christmas?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know if we can read anything into that, uh, necessarily, because I don't think it's a big enough um, issue to deflect from the big issues of the day around Brexit, but um, basically what was published was the Good Work Plan, um, and this is the government's response really to the Taylor Review into Modern Working Practices, which reported in July 2017. So, It's not like it's sort of uh, immediate hot off the press, it's taken them nearly 18 months to get here, but this is their response and the response that they published yesterday. And a a large part of the focus of the the Taylor review was certainly around the gig economy and recruitment, and was about making work fairer and of a better quality. So it's unsurprising really that a lot of the proposals, and completely agree with you that the detail is, is missing at this stage, but certainly a lot of the headlines And the proposals and the intentions that the government have have made in this good work plan that was published yesterday is very much um, aimed at recruitment the recruitment sector so you know it will have an impact quite how and when Um, watch this space but certainly the headlines would suggest that that there's going to be some significant changes afoot
1: so one of the proposals i think is the um, removal of the swedish derogation Uh, Do you think that's going to have any noticeable effect on recruiters? Um, Well, I think
2: uh, talking to a few clients yesterday, um, certainly, and my gut feel was prior to those conversations as well, that Swedish derogation and the Regulation 10 um, exception or exemption from parity pay is something that's been on a sort of downward spiral for some time. So certainly when the agency workers' regulations first came in, it was something that that everyone certainly looked at. So the reality was if you were supplying into a client where there was a a parity pay issue between a permanent comparator and the temporary workers, then really that was the obvious solution at that time. Um, Talking to one client yesterday, they said they had 100 clients and out of those 100 clients um, they've got 10 that are still running a Swedish derogation. Um, arrangement on their site, and that's probably gone down from about 50, um, three or four years ago. So I certainly think that the number of recruitment companies that will be directly impacted by the repealing of, of Swedish derogation or Regulation 10 um, exemption is going to not going to be as big as it perhaps was a couple of years ago. But I do think there's a sort of word of warning attached to that as well, because I think when you dig into what's happened is that there's probably been... Um, a corresponding increase in the number of people that are being supplied as self-employed contractors and obviously the way that the agency workers regulations work is it only relates to agency workers and specifically doesn't apply to self-employed contractors. So if recruiters are supplying in um, contractors who are deemed or or, or, are described as being self-employed they won't necessarily look to see whether there's a parity pay issue. So I suspect The changes with IR35 and the repeal of the Swedish derogation um, is going to be like a bit of a pincer movement and those that might sit there and think well actually this isn't going to apply to us because we don't supply anyone on the Swedish derogation contract might need to just take a step back and look at if there is a parity pay issue within their client. Around the contractors that they're supplying, because actually that might require them to sort of do some lateral thinking about what solutions they can create or suggest to their clients to continue a, a healthy supply and arrangement. Okay, that's
1: really interesting. So you're, you're saying that the general direction of travel then is towards pushing people onto payroll or into a position where they take complete responsibility?
2: Yeah, and certainly that's the government's stated intention as a sort of a, a very high level is to move much more to a, a on payroll um, situation and you know that you see that with the ir35 changes um they do recognize in the good work plan that there's a new way of working if you like or the choice of self-employment and the flexibility that self-employment provides is an important one for the economy and is something that they're keen to maintain i think the reality will be that actually it'd be much more difficult um, for people to disguise or to suggest themselves to be self-employed moving forward and what I think is happening at the minute is that that is the easy route that lots of recruiters and end-engager clients are taking. Um, so whilst they may not be considering Swedish derogation because actually we're already in a, we're going to just supply some self-employed contractors, if that's more difficult and there's a repeal of the um, Swedish derogation um, exemptions then ultimately. You, the, the recruiter's not left with a great deal of options at that stage, so it is going to end up, I think, in a situation where there's going to be more people on payroll, um, and, you know, the ability to um, determine self-employment, I think, is going to become more, it's going to become more tricky.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, so, I'm sure any of the, the recruiters who are working with you as one of your clients uh, are already informing all agency workers about their rights. Um, is there uh, likely to be anything extra that they need to do as a result of this proposal? Yeah,
2: um, two things in reality. Um, and you know, I, I think the, th- the problems that I see crossing my desk, because obviously I only see the problems a lot of the time, um, really I would say don't come from um, a desire of the recruiter not to share information, but the speed within which the supply and the engagement and the assignment may happen. So, you know, it's not always as a result of of an intentional sort of uh, not sharing information, but sometimes it's just the speed within which things happen. And and the reality is that the good work plan and the rules or the legislation that's likely to change around that, um, two things that are going to happen. One is that there's going to be a right to a written statement from day one, um, which, you know, in Europe is quite, you know, most people have sort of four or six weeks to. to to give a written statement but we're going to have a day one right for all workers to have a written statement Um, and that's going to be enhanced, we already have that at the moment but it's within six weeks of someone starting on an assignment or a job that they're entitled to a written statement. As a result of the Good Work Plan it appears that the government intends to change that and bring it down to a day one right and strengthen it so that it will include information around what sick pay is available, what other statutory leave is available, so maternity, paternity. Um, the type of contract, the duration and conditions of any um, probationary period um, and all remuneration, not just the hourly rate so if there are other things that they're entitled to. So uh, a much more sort of enhanced, if you like, written statement. Still not necessarily the contract of employment or the terms of engagement uh, but a a document that sets out the main terms and conditions of the engagement or Mm -hmm. employment. And then for recruiters, there's an additional requirement and there'll be a requirement to supply a key facts page, which will basically have to be um, a very simple, easy to understand document, basically setting out the key facts of an engagement. So the type of contract that they're being issued with, um, the minimum rate of pay, how they will be paid, and if an intermediary or an umbrella is being used, um, any deductions or fees that that umbrella or intermediary will take, um, along with an example or a worked estimate of um, how that will impact on their take home pay now i think that is going to be quite radical because i think if there is an area where you see confusion it is around the use of umbrellas um, and that key facts page clearly is going to require um, a very transparent calculation showing what margins what what, what rates of um, fee are being taken out of, of someone's pay when an intermediary umbrella is used Is that going to make it less attractive? Probably not, but I do think it will help to avoid some of the disputes that we see on a regular basis.
1: Yes, and certainly having very smooth administration, so it can happen in the timeframes that are expected, um, is going to be important there. Um, So, one other question. There's a proposed change to the holiday pay reference period, Mm -hmm. and what does that mean in practice for recruiters?
2: Well, the reality is I think it will just make it easier. So how things work at the moment is you take a reference period of 12 weeks. So if you request to take some holiday and that comes on work in a very sort of um, full period, um, then the recruiter should look back on the previous 12 weeks and work out what your pay rate should be for the holiday that you're taking for that particular week. Mm -hmm. And that means that, you know, depending on when you take your holiday, it can impact, so if it comes on the back of a relatively sort of um, slow period, and you've only been working three or four hours per week, then if you take a week's holiday, then you're only going to get three or four hours. Um, if it comes on the back of working 60 hours a week, then you're going to get paid 60 hours um, for that week's holiday that you take. So the idea is to take a, a longer period of 52 weeks, we'll then average it out over that 12-month period. I think the reality is for recruiters is they're not going to see a huge amount of difference because most recruiters will use the 12.07% calculation when they're looking at holiday pay. So most recruiters will say there's the hourly rate, the holiday pay is 12.07% of the hourly rate, mm-hmm. there's your holiday part and that accrues on each hour that you work. And the reality is that these changes will make it easier um, for the payroll systems that recruiters are currently using to ultimately pay out holiday. Um, I suppose what it will mean is that those recruiters that are perhaps aren't as transparent with holiday pots and will look to sort of uh, make sure that perhaps temps don't take as many holidays as they could or should um, are going to see an increase in the amount of holiday that is um, taken by temporary workers because in addition to changing the calculation period or the reference period what they're also going to do is go on a big Uh, media campaign, and awareness campaign, so that everyone is aware of the holiday entitlement and are encouraged to take the holidays and that's going to be combined with state enforcement. Now, um, Matthew Taylor in the Taylor Review suggested that that should be by HMRC and combined with national minimum wage, national living wage enforcement. Um, The Good Work Plan that the government published doesn't say that they're not going to have the obligation to do that but it doesn't say they are either. All it says is that they agree that state enforcement is needed to ensure that people get the holiday pay that they're entitled to. Okay. So again it's another one those Watch this space and see how that works out, but clearly I think people are going to be much more aware of their rights around holiday pay and will be encouraged to take their holiday pay.
1: Right, okay. And certainly uh, I'm aware of cases where um, workers haven't simply haven't been aware. Mm. Okay, so very briefly if you would. Um, There's also a proposed right to request a permanent or more stable contract Mm. after being in assignment for 12 months. Um, What do you think about the practicalities of that?
2: Well, the 12-month period and the wording really came from, again, from the Taylor Review. And that was what the Taylor Review basically said was that they thought after an assignment, someone had been on a long-term assignment, so they'd been in the same role for 12 months. They should have the right then to request a more permanent contract of employment is what it said in the Taylor review so it was much more um, akin to attempt perm type arrangement with a relatively fixed period of 12 months and after 12 months i think the idea even the Taylor report was very much um, they would have the, op- the ability to, to convert that temporary assignment into a permanent assignment um, the good work plan hasn't gone that far um, it hasn't mentioned any period of time that someone would be on an assignment for before they could request um, a, sort of a a contract, a more stable contract and it hasn't gone as far as saying that they would be entitled to a permanent contract of employment. What it actually has said is that um, they're going to introduce a right to request a more predictable and stable contract. That's a very open-ended and sort of, sort of nebulous um, idea in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, It could mean a thousand and one different things in its current format. Um, If I was going to bet something, I would have thought we might end up with something akin or similar to a flexible working request. So again, there in a flexible working request, an employee can say, I would quite like to change my hours or my role to be more flexible to accommodate childcare or or family arrangements. Uh, And an employer has um, a framework of reasons why they ultimately can refuse that request reasonably without then um, becoming liable for any particular claim and I think it'll be something it could be something similar so the challenge for recruiters and their clients are going to be to make sure that if they are going to refuse it that the refusal fits within the framework but that's just my guess at the moment At at this moment present moment in time it is very vague around what it is it's just a commitment to introduce a concept of a right to request a more stable contract.
1: Okay that's fascinating thank you very much for that Simon. So just to summarize then, um, an awful lot that in practice is still unclear, it almost raises more questions than uh, it's answered, but the general direction of travel is to make it harder to have disguised employment.
2: Absolutely and I think you know this is a trend that you see in, in all different sectors of recruitment, mm-hmm. um, so obviously the GLA changed into the GLAA um, the GLAA are pushing for a, a wider remit of sort of regulation and their ability to control. So it may be that the GLAA end up enforcing the holiday pay. Um, we've also got um, umbrellas that are now going to be regulated. So they will be regulated by the Employment Agencies Inspectorate, which is the same regulator that all recruitment businesses have to work to as well. Um, so you know, the the whole review that the Taylor um, Committee did was to ultimately look at how to improve the quality of work and certainly I would say roads are being made into that and a part of that road into that is going to be around it being more transparent and more clear and I think that transparency and clarity as well as the difference changes in the tax around IR35 will drive more people into an on-payroll Situation, so we perhaps will go back a number of years to find either a reduced need in temporary workers. And talking to a client yesterday, that was very much their response to this. Was you know, this is this is potentially disastrous because if we have to pay the same as um, a, a comparator um, permanent employee, and there is a right to this stable um, recruitment and predictable um, employment after a period of time where's our USP as a recruitment business? Um, But the reality is that the USP recruitment business is the flexibility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are lots of businesses out there that cannot afford and do not want to take on a raft of permanent employees. So it's going to be a challenge for the recruitment industry to sort of sit back, look, and to make sure that they remain relevant. Um, So I think there are going to be changes, but I don't necessarily think it's going to be as bad as perhaps some people would perceive it to be on first flush.
1: So Simon, thank you very much for your insight and comments on that, certainly some factors I was unaware of um, that you've introduced, Uh, so we'll be keeping an eye on that over uh, developments there over the course of the next year. Um, In our next podcast um, we'll be addressing the uh, implementation of new IR35 rules within the private sector. Um, and uh, the differences that I think we can anticipate between that and the implementation that happened in the public sector. So thank you for joining us on the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, and I hope you're able to join us next time.
0: You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you've enjoyed our podcast, make sure you subscribe to get notifications of when the next one is available. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about Recruitment Leadership, please send an email to alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk, referencing the podcast. You can also follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Freeze on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time for another episode of Recruitment Leadership Podcast.